Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sound Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in the atmospheric river that is Berkeley today. And as always, I am joined by uh, Bob Bazanko in Houston. Looking forward, excited uh, for today's guest, who's one of our favorite people and has been writing a lot of stuff lately, so can't wait to talk to him about it. Yep. And today we're joined by uh, Colonel Andrew Basevich, uh, returning guest to the Green and Red podcast. Welcome to Green and Red, uh, Colonel Basevich. Glad to be with you, but don't call me Colonel. Come on. Oh, oh sorry. How All about right. Andy? Andy, right. would you go Andy? Andy? Okay. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Andy's good. Uh, Andy is a, uh, a professor emeritus of international relations and history at Boston University. He's a retired uh, officer of the, US, of the U.S. Army, and he is co-founder and president of the Quincy Institute for State, uh, Responsible Statecraft. And then he has a new book called On Shedding an Obsolete Past, as well as many other books and uh, recent essays in Tom Dispatch and, and Foreign Affairs. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about it's the anniversary. Uh, it was recently the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, so we'll be talking about that some and many other issues around foreign policy as well. Um, and so, Colonel Basevich, maybe we can just start off. You actually, I think, last time you talked to us was last February, just before the the Ukraine war had begun, and you said that the U.S. sees threats as far away and needing a military response, but not close to home like climate change or COVID. Now that the war has gone on for a year and become more brutal and bloody, can you envision things ever going back? America looking inward instead of seeking monsters to destroy. And I, I would say that's also a theme in these uh, uh, some of these essays that you've just put out recently. Uh, yeah, uh, you're asking me, can can I imagine we're ever going back? Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a, in a sense, sadly, uh, you know, have, having reached about to reach the finish line in my life. I hope it won't be next week or next month, but you know, the end is near. Uh, one of the things that I guess I've concluded in my, uh, in witnessing America's role in the world is how stubbornly elites, the establishment, how stubbornly the establishment clings to a fairly specific and identifiable paradigm. And the essence of the paradigm is a belief in the imperative and, and inevitability of American global primacy, that there is no alternative. We have to be the big enchilada on the planet. Uh, and what's astonishing to me is uh, despite the accumulation of evidence to the contrary, that insistence remains intact as it does to the present moment. Uh, I'm assuming you believe that some kind of negotiations, uh, a ceasefire negotiations are necessary. And I went back and listened to our talk last year. And one thing that stood out, which I forgot, was that early on, Zelensky was very reluctant and, you know, kind of saying all the right things. But now, you know, everybody's really dug in been bloody, it's been brutal, right. significant losses, tons of money. Right. Is it even feasible to think, we've, we've heard about the Naftali Bennett, 
uh, story, you know, how uh, the U.S. and Britain scuttled negotiations last March. Is it really even feasible at this point to think that they'll find some way to actually talk this out or what would that look like? Well, I mean, you know, who knows? Uh, as you and I, as the three of us speak, it seems unlikely to happen anytime soon. But there are uh, there are unknowns here that could affect that judgment. Something that I've been toying with lately in a, in a short essay. I mean, the big unknown is nuclear weapons. Uh, I have been struck by the extent to which, at least seemingly, uh, neither our government nor the the punditocracy takes very seriously the possibility of nuclear war coming out of the Ukraine crisis. And I don't mean uh, to me the to me the, the 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 immediate concern is not that suddenly the Soviets are going to launch a uh, you know nuclear strike against the United States as we imagined was a possibility uh, back during the Cold War. But I think that there uh, there are ways to think about using nuclear weapons that would substantially increase Russia's leverage vis-a-vis the West, quite frankly, leverage especially against uh, Europe. Uh, imagine that the Russians popped off a relatively small a tactical nuclear weapon, uh, perhaps even on Russian territory, as a signal of their willingness to cross that threshold. How would Germany, to take just one example, respond to that? I think they'd go nuts. Uh, and therefore, the Western solidarity, which has been constructed at, you know, with great care by the Biden administration, to me, could rather quickly unravel. And were that to happen, then yeah, suddenly a negotiated end to the war becomes much more plausible. <laughs> you know, I am not a nuclear strategist, but if I can imagine that kind of scenario, I sure as heck think that there must be senior officials in the Kremlin who, be, who, who would figure that out and would then seriously assess the pros and cons from their point of view. So, I mean, you're right that it right now, it, it, the, all, everybody says, oh, my God, it's a frozen conflict. This thing's going to go on indefinitely. And that may be correct in terms of, yes, right now at this very precise moment, I don't think it's necessarily going to continue, uh, you know, forever. But we'll see. We'll see. Another component here is how much the sort of war industry has uh, really like seized upon this kind of towards the beginning of the conflict. We saw comments from the, the I think it was the CEO of Raytheon, maybe Lockheed Martin, uh, about how they're looking at a very good quarter because of potential conflict in China and Ukraine. And, you know, that was on the, you know, that was just months after, you know, the, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was in like many ways, like at least optically, like humiliating for the U.S. And I'm wondering, are, were you surprised at how quickly like people who are profiting from war, militarists, military 
complex industry industrial complex were able to sort of resurrect themselves so quickly around the this proxy war in the U.S. I I don't think I was because that's what they do, you know. I mean they're they are they're in the making money business, and therefore they are uh, they're alert to opportunities, and they waste no time in exploiting opportunities. And war for them is a great opportunity. So that that doesn't the part that surprises me is that so soon after the humiliating conclusion of the Afghanistan war, we always have to acknowledge, remind ourselves, the longest war in our history. Uh, so, so soon after the humiliate, humiliating conclusion of the war, why, why, why doesn't the political establishment uh, demonstrate a certain wariness before jumping into the next conflict? Now, let's be fair. Biden has been very clear that he intends to prevent U.S. forces becoming directly involved. In other words, he's saying we're going to engage in a proxy war and there will not be any American bloodshed. And so far, he's been able to sustain that. Uh, were that to come apart, uh, then I think the American support for the U Ukraine war could could begin to unravel. And again, we'd have a new set of circumstances that might facilitate the beginning of serious uh, negotiations. Uh, the war's got to end, uh, you know, barring a nuclear holocaust, uh, it, it's going to end, it's, it's going to end through some kind of deal. Uh, and it's really a matter of trying to figure out how to begin the a serious talks to, to forge that deal. I mean, even though I'm, I'm sure you've been accused of being a, uh some kind of puppet for Putin or, or whatever. But again, last year we were talking about um, kind of strategic empathy, the idea that you may not like what another country is doing and they may be bad, right. but right. but you have to understand that they have their own interest. And, right. you know, uh, we talked about NATO and NATO's expanded even since then. And, right. you know, uh, uh, to not to say, you know, like tell us why Putin's doing you know a, a good thing, but, you know, Russia seems actually realistically to be hemmed in and, and um, you know, not, I mean, do you see any way that they could, you know, kind of be given an out to, to kind of have some credibility left? Yeah, yeah, I think I can. I mean, I, I, I let's back up a second. Before the war began, and not just days before, months before, years before, uh, Putin was signaling that he is, he, his insistence that there is a, well, first of all, his insistence that, that Russia is a great power and deserves to be respected. Second, that Russia has a set of vital security interests that are defined at least partially in territorial terms, which is another way of saying he contended that Russia has a sphere of influence that others should respect. And if they respect it, then there's a possibility of mutual coexistence. You'll recall, and I think this was not only after the war began, but before the war began, the Biden administration's uh, position, if I remember correctly, articulated in particular by the Secretary of State, the position was, there are no such things as spheres of influence. 
That's a that's a old-fashioned nineteenth-century concept that has no uh, validity. Uh, Putin obviously didn't accept that, and of course the ironic part is that actually neither do we. I mean, the United States certainly expects respect for a sphere of influence that minimally consists of the Western Hemisphere and maximally consists of the entire planet. <laughs> that apart, you know, apart from the People's Republic of China and Russia, about everything else, we expect to have a certain amount of deference with regard to you know, our presence and our activities. So, you know, I, I think the, the, the precondition of an agreement is for the United States to acknowledge that yes, Russia does have interests that are distinct from our own, and that Russia deserves to have those interests respected. You know, Bob, you're right, and that makes you, that that brings out accusations of being a a, a Putin sympathizer, you know, and a which is absurd. But but the larger point of of the importance of, of trying to empathize, not not agree with, not endorse, but to try to empathize with the perspective of your adversary is like you know rule number one I think in uh, in statecraft. Pretty recently, Rand, kind of an establishment think tank, put out a big study saying you know, this this thing has to end. And then uh, we've talked about Mark Milley before. Milley has said you know yeah. some kind of. Just, do you, do you think that indicates that there are fissures or there's actually a debate going on uh, at, at these levels? Because uh, Biden certainly seems obstinate. He's throwing money around. He's raising the, the defense budget. He's ignoring uh, East Palestine, Ohio. is very close to where I'm from, and mm-hmm. no one seems to care about them. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the honest answer is I have no idea whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is interesting to me that, uh, you know, Biden... One of the one of the overarching themes of his administration uh, re- relates to uh, his belief a- in democracy, and and his depiction of world politics in our moment as really a great cosmic contest between democracy and authoritarianism. I think that's a vast oversimplification, but if it makes him feel good, I, I don't really care what he says. But but the but the say the but. The relevant part is we, we are a democracy, but how the hell then can I not really have any clear understanding of what the United States government is thinking and doing with regard to this terrible crisis, you know? I expect behind closed doors, people like General Milley talking to the president probably does say, hey, wait a second, it really would be useful if we could find a negotiated end to this uh, conflict. But the public face presented to us, citizens, voters, the people, is that uh, the object of the exercise is to achieve a Ukrainian victory uh, over Russia. And of course, that, that there's no basis for negotiating if that's the... If, if that's what we're trying to achieve. And what would that be? I mean, push Russia out of Donbass, obviously, but get rid of Putin. I mean, what does that even mean? I, I mean, I, yeah. you know, all, all the three of us know is kind of what we read in the papers. Right, but I mean, right, right, it yeah. seems pretty clear to me that there are a lot of people who, who think that uh, 
getting rid of Putin is a, a central war aim. Yeah. Now, I imagine they're hoping that somebody else will do the dirty work. You know, there'll be some inside. Uh, remember, that's what we hoped would happen after the Gulf War of uh, 1991 or whatever it was. So that we all the 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 the, the uh, Bush senior administration hoped that Iraqis would then dump Saddam and solve the problem. So that's not exactly a, a plan that has proven to be so. But I, I imagine they would like some entities within Russia to remove Putin from Putin from power with an expectation that whoever then takes over might be more amenable to whatever the U.S. and the Europeans have on offer. But again, you know, what do we know? We're, we're just we're witnesses. You're you're the you're an expert compared yeah, to no, the vast no, majority no. of Americans. So if you don't know, then you know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, I it, kind of talking about this, like talk about dumping Putin. It seems like there's potential where Biden could be dumped before Putin could be dumped, mm. and and that and it seems like. Uh, you know, thinking about the elections last fall, it didn't seem like Ukraine war was even like really much of an issue um, in the in the elections in the U.S. elections last year. And I'm just wondering if you think there will eventually be any kind of like domestic political consequences for the Democrats and the Republicans who support the war, or if it's you know just one of those things that's less talked about in, in the political circles in which I work. I do a lot of organizing work. People barely talk about the Ukraine. They're, they talk more about, you know, climate. They talk about the things that we should maybe be focused on, like climate change or the pandemic or, you know, the cost of living. I, my, my view is that if, if if there's no American blood being shed, the American people could care less. That, that overstates it. But, but the American people won't see the, the issue at hand as having real meaning for the United States of America. Uh, so, you know, certainly the papers are full of discussion, commentary, reporting on the Ukraine war, but it's one of those wars that's way the heck over there. Uh, and so that allows the American people to, uh, to, to not completely tune it out, but to you know, classify it as uh, a, a problem of, of lesser concern to you know, to whether or not you can get tickets to, uh, you know, Rihanna's new uh, music tour. Uh, um, I want to kind of move a little bit across the world to, to, to Taiwan because uh, the rhetoric I'm seeing right now there is is pretty intense. It's you yep. know somebody who studied this like you have it's it's up there. Yep. And um, I, you know I, I always believe there's they're never going to try to provoke an actual conflict with. Uh, with China, but I'm not as sure anymore. I just wondered, you know, what you thought of kind of the these kind of bellicose uh, hearings in Congress, and you have these military people saying yep. we have to be ready tonight. Yep. Yeah, get the four-star uh, four-star general who says we're going to be at war with China by 2025. Right? Oh, wait yep. a second, it's already 2023. <laughs> well, that last year, the the I think it was the CNO said 23. You did say 23. I, no, it's it's yeah. uh, a lot of reckless talk. Uh, you know, I, I, I have visited China one, one time, uh, and it's now a dozen years ago. And it was a fascinating visit. Uh, you, you cannot help but be impressed by the, uh, the level of development, economic change right there, smacks you in the face. 
And on this trip, obviously we were being propagandized wherever we went. But we talked to we talked to government officials. We talked to uh, uh, party officials. We talked to uh, academics. Uh, very sophisticated people. And they were at one uh, in insisting upon the importance of Taiwan and, and, and of ultimate reunification. They weren't saying, and we're going to make that happen tomorrow. Uh, but I must admit, I, I came away believing that uh, there is something like unanimity with regard to the insistence that Taiwan must someday uh, return to uh, direct, you know, PRC control. It ain't no joke. And it has seemed until now that there's recognition both in Beijing and in Washington that the status quo ain't that bad. You know, let's, if we can maintain this, it ain't that bad. Uh, because it gives us political stability. It's given both sides all kinds of economic opportunity. Be given, given Taiwan economic opportunity. They have a huge cross-straits trade uh, with, with the PRC. So who wants to upset this apple cart? Uh, and it really does seem like that it's rhetoric coming out of the United States that, that, that is the biggest threat. Uh, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give a pass to the PRC. I, I do think that uh, certain PR, PRC actions, particularly in the South China Sea, uh, are uh, you know, provocative, foolish, I would say. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I, 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 I don't necessarily lead to war. But I'm with you, Bob, that the, that the mood in our country seems to be becoming increasingly hostile uh, to uh, in, in, increasingly not welcoming the prospect of war, but finding that prospect to be somehow uh, acceptable. Uh, and to me, that boggles the mind. I, I mean, a, 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 a war between the United States and the People's Republic probably would end up involving the use of nuclear weapons. Even think, if it yeah. didn't, the economic uh, impact on the entire globe would be profound. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I, you, know, you, you have to hope that uh, uh, you know, so sober minds will prevail, uh, but there doesn't seem like a lot of sobriety on that on that score in Washington these days. Well, yeah, the, the way the hysteria was ginned up with with balloons. Bal oh, I don't think, a perfect <laughs> example. You know, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence you're having these Wuhan lab hearings right now. I mean, they could have done these right. at any time, but now right. you need to kind of again gin this up. Also, I mean, I think one thing I like to tell people is, you know, there, there's international law maybe quaint, right? But there is actually there, you know, Taiwan has a legal status recognized by the U.S. one China policy. Right. And this is anybody like globally, you know, thinking about that. I mean, that opens That's the door to a bunch of countries doing a bunch of stuff. Right. The Pentagon's thinking about it because they're working <laughs> on contingency plans, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if China were to meddle in Puerto Rico. Well, you know, I, I think we would, you know, the, the United States would be upset that's, about that. That's the American sphere of interest. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry, Scott. No, no, it's, it's good.
I mean, there's like the sort of rhetoric, but then there's also the the sort of what I would say are more material things. Like I, I was just, you know, there's they just made a deal to build four new bases in the Philippines, you know, facing the South China Sea and Taiwan. Seems, and you know, we've been hearing for a year or two about these deals with the Australians around nuclear subs. It just seems like the the provocation is kind of two sided, and it it does like kind of boggle the mind. And then and then this like hysteria around balloons is also in, in labs. It's just kind of uh, well, you feels know, I think it's a reminder. The things you decided, uh, it's a reminder to us of the of who has clout uh, in Washington. There was a time before World War II, I guess, where it was widely recognized that the Secretary of State was the premier figure in the cabinet. Uh, there was a Secretary of War. There was a Secretary of Navy of the Navy. There was a chief of staff of the army, uh, and these were these were figures uh, in in politics, but the secretary of state was the was numero uno. That's not the case today. I mean, it hasn't been for a long time. Uh, DoD is where the action is. DoD gets the resources, and I think that that's evident uh, in in the way U.S. China relations are evolving in this in this growing sort of militancy on the part of the United States, because that's the Department of Defense, which shouldn't be called that, it should be called Department of War, but that's the Department of Defense sort of doing what it, doing what it does. I mean, we, we cannot say that we're surprised that DOD is negotiating agreements for uh, new bases in the Philippines. We can't say we're surprised because that's what they do. I mean, they, the, the, the Department of Defense specializes in the projection of military power. And they des we design U.S. forces to project power. We station them to project power. We develop infrastructure to facilitate the projection of power. So the D DODs, they're looking at their playbook and, and, uh, and, and, and following it. Uh, what's so unfortunate is that the State Department is relatively weak, and quite frankly, I think the State Department probably has embraced the DOD mindset uh, to a very considerable extent. So they don't, they don't even have an, an alternative on offer. Uh, that's where we are. Um, yeah, I think, thank you I think all of you for listening and watching uh, the Green and Red podcast. We're talking with Andrew Dasevich, a, a well-known uh, analyst of, of foreign policy and and global affairs. Um, today, you know, the headlines was that uh, China is now brokering talks between uh, Iran and Saudi. And so there's a diplomatic offensive too, while the U.S. has, yeah. you know, massive nuclear advantage, huge bases advantage. China's kind of going out there. And, I mean, I think the rest of the world is looking at, at this, both in Ukraine and China, is looking at these much differently than the, the Americans are, uh, aren't, aren't they? There's a, a different global perception of the U.S. That I think it's absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Europe, broadly speaking, uh, is doing what it has mostly done, and that is to it defers to Washington on matters like the uh, Ukraine war. But, but that doesn't determine what India's policy is. It doesn't determine determine what. Saudi Arabia's policy is, or Brazil's policy, or Turkey's policy, 
And again, this this is one of the key things that uh, other people, this is not like an original thought on my part, but the distribution of power in, in, globally is changing. Uh, it doesn't mean that the United States is going to be left out. It doesn't mean the United States is going to decline to become a third-rate power. But it is becoming, it has become a multipolar order. Uh, and, and therefore, the perspective of some of these other countries uh, has to be taken into account. Uh, and the notion that just because we don't like Putin, everybody else isn't supposed to not like Putin, simply doesn't work anymore. Uh, although, again, you know, I think if you're in Washington or if you read the New York Times or the Washington Post, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to get that alternative perspective. You know, actually, in kind of talking about that sort of disparity of power for the disbursement of, of power that's going on in the world. Um, you're in your foreign affairs essay, you, you actually talk a lot about NSC 68, which I really appreciate as a young grad student under Bob Bezenko, I actually learned a whole lot about that. And you, you make a point that, you know, Washington seems to, you know, there's you said this earlier, but they're stuck to this sort of like paradigm of Cold War NSC 68. And it seems like it's that's somewhat intensified and it uh, also seems like this is somewhat from the foreign policy establishment establishment response to to the trump presidency where he was wanting to do things like get us out of nato and like, you know in the forever wars at least rhetorically yeah and i'm just wondering if you could you know this is gonna be this is a big question i think this is gonna lead to a bit of a discussion but i'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on that well you know we're, we're coming up in the 20th anniversary of the of the iraq war uh which I think was the uh, the principal expression of U.S. efforts, Bush administration efforts, but not simply the Bush administration, principal expression of U.S. efforts to show that 9-11 really didn't mean anything, that, that by God, we were still number one. And we're going to go kick some ass in Afghanistan. We're going to kick some ass, especially in Iraq. We're going to get rid of this guy, Saddam Hussein. We're going to, we're going to achieve at least significant control in the Arab world, if not some thought, transform the Arab world. Uh, and, and once the dust settles, and it won't take long, once the dust settles, there will be no mistaking who's in charge. Uh, and, you know, I guess along with Vietnam, I don't know that there has been a greater miscalculation in American policy in all of our history, because it sure, sure as hell didn't come out the way the Bush administration or the neoconservatives uh, thought that it would. And I think that, that to, to an extent that we still don't, uh, we're not able to uh, uh, measure. The war triggered a backlash. And it was a, it was a backlash from the bottom up. It was ordinary people who, who already had all kinds of reasons to be disenchanted with the direction of American policy. Some of their disenchantment might be things that you would agree with, some might be things that you disagree with, but the country was going in a, in a direction that that, that a substantial number of our fellow citizens said, 
I can't support this. I find this objectionable. And then on top of that, the Bush administration uh, embeds us in this totally unnecessary and very costly war. I think if you want to know why uh, Trump became president, that's where your explanation has to begin. And, 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 and God knows Trump is dishonest. God knows Trump is incompetent. God knows he wasn't remotely qualified to be president of the United States. He's a buffoon. I'll, I'll give you whatever negative descriptions you want. But he did have a sense, I think, an accurate sense, that the American people were, were fed up with what they perceived to be ill-advised adventures abroad. And the Iraq war was that in spades. They elect him president. Of course, he we, we get all the rhetoric of America first and, uh, you know, charges that uh, isolationism is around the corner. None of it actually comes to pass because the guy's totally incompetent, doesn't even have the necessary attention span, I think, to actually f follow through on anything that he said. But nonetheless, I think I say in the foreign affairs piece, the foreign policy establishment has a has a nervous breakdown. You know, everything that we have most feared is now seems to be coming to pass. Look at the guy who's in the White House. Again, it was an exaggerated fear because Trump didn't have any idea what he was actually doing. But nonetheless, it now seemed like isolationism, in air quotes, uh, was was now upon us. Uh, and I, I, th I think that that, you know, uh, st struck panic into the hearts of the foreign policy establishment. And they're still afraid that out there in places that they don't even know where they are, like East Palestine, Ohio, yeah. uh, that there's all these all these ordinary people who don't understand why we need to have bases in the Philippines. And... Uh -huh. Go ahead, Bob. Oh, no, no, I, I, they're actually, I've seen interviews, like I said, I'm from around there. Mm -hmm. And these people who are, you know, not part of the sophisticated Northeastern elite, we're, we're directly saying, you know, like Biden's in Ukraine right now, giving them billions. I mean, yeah. they, they made the connection. It wasn't that hard. Right. And I mean, you bring up an important point because when you look at things like, you know, when Biden announced the withdrawal from Afghanistan, it was like two thirds of Americans supported it. Right. Support for Ukraine is waning right now. Right. In the 80s, Central America was was never popular. I mean, this country, you know, the, there's a huge gap between the, the elite who make these yep. decisions and, and the rest of us, and, um, which I guess is kind of sobering and, and, and actually, to me, kind of bleak because it kind of means that they don't really, they, well, which I believe, but they don't really care what we think. I've always believed that, but, you know, I, I think it just kind of continues to show itself. But to me, the, the, the puzzling part, I agree with what you just said. Therefore, one would think that I don't care which party it would be, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, doesn't matter to me. That one of the two of them would say, hey, wait a second. There's an opportunity here. We, there, there are new ways for us to speak to the American people, to tap into the sources of their distrust. And one of them has to do with our propensity for war and our role in the world. Maybe we should take seriously their complaints about 
all the money that goes to Ukraine as opposed to it goes to East Palestine. Maybe we should take seriously their anger about the losses that we suffered in Iraq and Afghanistan. Maybe there's a new way to frame U.S. foreign policy that will get our party into the White House again. And that doesn't happen. I mean, in, in both parties, the idea of substantially reimagining America's role in the world is off limits. You know, there, there, there is, there is a, a left in the Democratic Party that would welcome big change in foreign policy. There, there is a far right in the Republican Party that would welcome serious change in foreign policy. But the center is committed to the status quo. You know, the, the, the debacle of the Afghanistan withdrawal, it's only a couple months later that the Congress pa passes a new uh, spending bill for the Pentagon. No, no debate. They increased the defense budget. Yeah. They, they, they gave more than Biden asked for. More than yeah. Biden asked for. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. And you know, here's here's bipartisanship for you. Oh yeah, yeah. It's you just know, yeah. You, you have a hard time getting your brain around. <laughs> I had the computer on yesterday, but I, I was listening, but I wasn't watching it. And I heard somebody talking about Syria. And, you know, after a second, I had to look over because it was intriguing because this is like saying kind of the stuff that you or I or Scott would say. It was Matt Gates. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. But 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 they are on, on the left and on the right. These are categorized as fringe opinions. Yeah that should not be taken uh, seriously. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if Scott is any, I, I know, you know, you're, we're, we're getting close to the end. I just have one last thing. I don't know if Scott has, has anything. Um, this is actually a, a more of a curiosity. Um, we talked to Seymour Hersh last week, who by the way, had really, really a lot of nice things to say about your work. He's oh. a big fan. But um, I just wondered what, what you thought of, of all that, you know, uh, his allegations about Nord Stream, uh, the U.S. now seems to me scrambling to come up with an alternative version. Well, I mean, I, I'm a fan of Seymour Hersh, although, you know, he's got some blemishes on his record where I think that he pushed the evidence farther than it really would be appropriate to take it. Uh, aside. But, but, he's, but, he's, but he's a brilliant journalist, and he's a gutsy one. He doesn't give a damn. He's going he's gonna to call it the way he, uh, he sees it. I don't think I know enough to make a judgment as to who blew up the Nord Stream 2, uh, you know, pipeline. Uh, but it is fascinating that as soon as Hirsch publishes his article, that we now have in the mainstream press, all these other articles saying, well, I don't, we, we don't know, but it, it could be them and it could be these, it could be these guys. So they're just sort of throwing sand in the face of the public. Uh, in order to obscure things rather than to clarify, which I suppose in, a, in an odd way is a tribute to Seymour Hirsch, because uh, none of that would be happening were it not for his, uh, his uh, article in the first place. Um, as we go, just uh, do you want to say something about a responsible statecraft? I'm a, I'm a big fan. Uh, I check it out all the time. And, and also your new book, if you want to just mention well, let, let's let, let let me just talk a little bit about uh, QI. Uh, so we're a think tank in, in in a city that has 
dozens of think tanks. We're, we're a startup. We're about a little more than two years old. Uh, we stand for restraint. Uh, critics will say we are isolationists. We are not. We absolutely believe in the importance of the United States being engaged in the world. Uh, we don't think that a military power ought to be the primary expression of that engagement. So it's probably fair to say that we're anti-war, at, at least we're anti-stupid war, and most of our wars seem to be pretty uh, stupid. Uh, we've got a staff of about 40 in Washington, D.C. I'm not there. I live in Walpole, Massachusetts. Uh, I'm, I'm easily the oldest person uh, associated with QI. So it's, it's young people, uh, a very diverse group, nonpartisan. We're not, we don't try to be democratic. We don't try to be Republican. We try to be people who are principled in offering a critique of U.S. policy and proposing an alternative. Uh, and we're young and we're feisty and I think we're doing good work. And yet we all acknowledge that we have a, we have a big task ahead of us if ever we're going to bring about real change. But it's a fight worth fighting. I believe that, and I think everybody at QI agrees with me. Just want to say thanks, and also just the blurb your new book on. Oh, you can't see it, in my blur, but on shutting the obsolete past and obsolete past, uh, bidding farewell to the American century. Uh, well, definitely thank you. That's that's essays uh, that appeared in Tom Dispatch over a period of years, and I I hope people will think that they're worth uh, rereading or rereading together to see what the themes are. Yeah, it's a great collection. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Let's talk yeah. again, okay? It's great Absolutely. talking with you. Take care. Really appreciate you making time for us. So Okay. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, folks, that was uh, Andy Basevich talking with us about all matters foreign policy. You've been listening to the Green and Red podcast. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, please check us out on our social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. And if you like us a lot, you can make a donation. Go to greenredpodcast.org and hit the support button. Or you can go to Patreon and become a patron at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. And we'll have lots of info about uh, Colonel Basevich's articles and books in our show notes if you want to check them out. So we'll talk to you all again soon.